This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. Uh, my name is John Fleetham and I'm a professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Today I'm joined by Dr. Robert Owens, who is the chair of the ATS subcommittee who developed the ATS clinical practice guideline on long-term non-invasive ventilation in chronic stable hypercapnic chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And this was published in the Blue Journal in August. Uh, Dr. Owens is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California in San Diego. So Bob, thanks for joining us today. And to start off, uh, why did the ATS decide to develop a clinical practice guideline on this topic at this time? Sure. Well, first, thank you very much for having me. Um, you know, I think there are really two reasons why the ATS uh, started to look at this problem. And, and the first is I think that there were a few really key studies that came out 2014, 2017 timeframe. And we actually started this process uh, in 2018. So there were new data that came out uh, and both the American Thoracic Society and the European Respiratory Society decided to pursue clinical practice guidelines. The other thing which I think gives this, you know, some, some push here is that you know, there aren't many great therapies that improved heart outcomes for patients with COPD. You can try to quit smoking, oxygen therapy. Uh, so it's exciting to think that there might be another therapy which actually improves mortality for these patients. So I think those were really the, the reasons to come up with this clinical practice guideline now. Okay, so who developed the guidelines? How did you select the questions and, and what was your methodology? Well, you know, the, the, this is definitely a team effort. So I, I want to acknowledge uh, that I'm speaking with you today um, and, and really on behalf of the other people uh, who helped with this, in particular, my co-chairs, uh, Madalena McCrea and Brad Drummond. And, um, you know, so the methodology we used is what's called the GRADE approach. So that stands for Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. And, and this is a formal approach to create guidelines. And at the heart of this process is a panel of experts in this space. And so we went, we created this panel of experts. They were vetted for conflicts of interest. And then the panel came up with what we thought were a few of the most pressing questions uh, in this space. And um, the only other thing I'll mention is that we also have to assess what we think are the key outcomes. And when I say we, a lot of times that's physicians and we think mortality is important among other outcomes. For this guideline, we also had a couple patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And you know, they said, you guys seem interested in things like PaCO2. We're not interested in that. We wanna think about hospitalizations and dyspnea. Um, so again, that's sort of how we, that's the methodology we use, how we came up with the questions and, and how we thought about what are the key outcomes for those questions. Now you mentioned the grade uh, recommendations or grade approach. Um, they either label recommendations either strong or conditional. Can you just summarize for the listeners the implications of these terms for patients, clinicians, and policymakers? 
Yeah, so I think, um, you know, this was a language that I had to sort of pick up or get used to. When you have a strong recommendation, oftentimes you would use the phrase, you know, we, we or the ATS recommends that you do something. And, and what this means is that for most patients or clinicians, if you have a strong recommendation, you should probably go ahead and do that recommendation or that intervention. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of patients and clinicians would think this is the right thing to do. It also means from a policy point of view that if you have a strong recommendation, uh, that that should be brought forward uh, with payers. And it also means that, uh, you know, the recommendation is so strong that you should think about doing this even as a quality metric. Uh, when you have a conditional recommendation, then the language we use is uh, we suggest. So instead of we recommend, we say we suggest. And it still means that most patients would probably want this intervention, uh, but you should, you know, but that many would not, and that you need to look, you know, have more of a discussion between clinician and patient about whether or not this is a good idea for your individual patient. For policymakers, it means there's more of a discussion about whether this, you know, how to implement the, the clinical practice guidelines that we're suggesting. Now, before we start, how did you define uh, chronic stable hypercatnic COPD? Well, um, that is a good question. And, uh, you know, it seems incredibly clunky how we have laid things out. So we've talked about we have chronic stable hypercapnic and then the word chronic again. And it sounds small, but we had many discussions about this. Um, and I guess the, the most important distinction I, I want to make for anybody who's listening in is that we are not talking about the use of uh, non-invasive ventilation for an acute exacerbation or an acute on chronic exacerbation in the hospital. I think you know, that's, a, that's a separate problem. It has its own literature here. We are really trying to convey that these are patients you were likely to see in the outpatient setting. They were a couple weeks removed at least from an exacerbation. Um, and, uh, and, and again, sort of changing the, the focus point, you know, this is more of an outpatient thing than an inpatient thing. We did use a little bit lower level of hypercapnia. Um, the way we defined it in the guideline was a, a level of CO2 more than 45 millimeters of mercury. Uh, and that's a little bit lower, but there are studies that have used a similar threshold. And we wanted to make sure when we reviewed all the evidence that we were able to include all of those, all of those studies. So that's, that's how we define it. So you had five questions. Um, what was the recommendation for the first question? And that was, should long-term nocturnal non-invasive ventilation versus usual care be used for chronic stable outpatients with hypercapnic COPD? So we had, uh, we made a conditional recommendation to use non-invasive ventilation. So we think that it is a good idea in a in a well-optimized, you know, otherwise well-treated patient to go ahead and add nocturnal non-invasive ventilation onto their usual care for COPD patients. Um, and I would say that the, the data here aren't a slam dunk. You know, if you, if you review all the data and all the studies, there's a trend towards improved outcomes, but it's not clearly statistically significant. And, and that's really why we had a, a conditional recommendation um, we, weren't, we weren't able to be more definitive because the data aren't there. The one thing I will say, though, is that when you look at the, the data and you look at mortality, 
hospital admissions, dyspnea, uh, quality of life. It all goes in the same direction, meaning it is all better uh, when you look at the data for the use of non-invasive ventilation. So that's how we sort of uh, came up with a conditional recommendation um, to go ahead and use non-invasive ventilation. What do you think the barriers might be for the, the widespread acceptance of this recommendation? It's interesting because I think when you say barriers to acceptance, I think there's sort of two parts of that. I think in terms of barriers, I, I think that the main barriers there are going to be cost and expertise. And um, so obviously there's the cost of the devices um, and, and perhaps monitoring these patients. I think expertise is actually a huge barrier here. Um, a lot of these patients or, or really the use of non-invasive ventilation, it falls behind, between two specialties. So I think you have your pulmonologists who are probably experts at COPD management. You often have your sleep specialists who are experts with CPAP and maybe bi-level devices, but there aren't as many people that you would like, or at least as I would like, as totally self-interested in this, um, that can sort of walk uh, you know, between these two specialties. And so I think really having um, expertise in both sleep and pulmonary is a, is a barrier to getting this uh, out there for patients. You also mentioned acceptance. I think that, um, you know, there is a perception that non-invasive ventilation similar to CPAP might be something that is not viewed as a, as a positive by patients. And so I think we need to do education for both providers that this is valuable to do, um, but also to patients that this is something that we're trying to do, not only because it makes us feel like we're doing something, but because it could improve their quality of life and their dyspnea as well. So your second question was, should patients with chronic stable hypercapnic COPD undergo assessment for sleep apnea before initiation of long-term non-invasive ventilation? What were your recommendations for that? Yeah, so, so we, um, you know, it's not often that you get to be uh, so coy with a clinical practice guideline, but, but we were sort of coy. We, we recommended that uh, patients undergo an assessment for obstructive sleep apnea, but we did not really specify what that kind of assessment needed to be. And we certainly did not want this to be uh, polysomnography. We don't, you know, we don't think that every patient needs to have an in-laboratory study before going on to therapy. Um, but we have to recognize that almost all of the key studies here have excluded patients either with obstructive sleep apnea or they've excluded patients who are very likely to have obstructive sleep apnea based on uh, you know, high body mass index. So you know, our concern as a group was that you might have a patient who's got a lot of obstructive sleep apnea, maybe even heading to obstructive uh, to uh, obesity hypoventilation, uh, and yet has been labeled COPD or has a mild amount of COPD. And, and specifically, we wanted to make sure that patients who could get by with a CPAP device uh, could get by with a CPAP device and didn't end up on non-invasive ventilation. So again, we recommended an assessment. In the clinical practice guideline, if, if people want to read through it, we sort of do a thought experiment where we use things like the Berlin questionnaire to um, screen for sleep apnea. But the key point of this recommendation is just when you're looking at the patient in front of you, you know, do you think they have sleep apnea? Could that be really 
a larger part of their problem than any um, COPD that they have. Okay, so another leading question is, uh, what could be the barriers to, to the, what are the, sorry, what are the, so I'll restate that. What are the potential desirable and undesirable consequences of this recommendation? Well, what we hoped is that a desirable outcome would, that, would be that a physician would diagnose OSA appropriately, and that might help the clinician think about the patient more correctly, and it might also be easier and cheaper to use you know, a regular um, CPAP device rather than sort of a fancy bi-level device. Um, I, I don't know about you, but you know, I, it's not uncommon for me to be rounding with my team in the ICU. We have a patient who comes in with recurrent hypercapnic respiratory failure, and the team says, well, this patient has COPD. And I ask the patient, you know, well, how much have you smoked or whatever? They say, I've never smoked, but their BMI is 45. And, you know, so again, sometimes patients are labeled as having COPD, but they really have more of an obesity problem or severe OSA. So I think if we, a desirable outcome is that we would help think more correctly about patients or classify them more correctly. The undesirable consequence is that if we screen too rigorously, we might end up sending patients or many patients for polysomnography that don't actually need it and that we end up delaying care. And that's, again, part of the reason why um, we did not formally say that the assessment should include polysomnography. I don't think we care if patients have a little bit of obstructive sleep apnea, that's going to be treated with non-invasive ventilation. But, but the converse, missing a patient who's got a lot of obstructive sleep apnea and not that much COPD, I think, I think we want to make sure we're not doing that. Next, uh, your next question was, should, short, should long-term non-invasive ventilation be initiated in patients hospitalized with a COPD exacerbation associated with acute on chronic respiratory failure? What were your recommendations for that? So we recommended against an early initiation uh, of non-invasive ventilation immediately following an exacerbation of COPD. And uh, in part, uh, well, first off, we recommended instead that you reevaluate the patient two to four weeks after any recent exacerbation. And in part, uh, this was because of the, what's called the rescue study um, by Peter Wickstra, who was um, one of our panelists. Uh, you know, they showed that this appro approach did not improve outcomes. So you know, they had a couple hundred patients. They're in the hospital. They've just been on bi-level ventilation. You could imagine it'd be a very convenient place or a way to say, hey, you know, keep that machine, keep using this, we'll prevent any early readmission. But they didn't really see that. And I think the data suggests that many people who are acutely hypercapnic actually are able to clear their CO2 over time. And so if you start non-invasive ventilation too early, you, you might end up sort of treating, treating in quotations, uh, quotation marks, people who don't actually need it at that time. So um, the, the Murphy study in JAMA 2017 called HOT-HMV showed that many patients, if you did reevaluate them two to four weeks later, they didn't meet criteria for non-invasive ventilation any longer. So both ourselves and the uh, European Respiratory Society said, you know, you should reevaluate patients uh, a couple weeks later. Okay, uh, two more recommendations to go. Uh, the next one is, should long-term non-invasive ventilation settings 
be determined by an in-laboratory overnight polysomnogram in patients with chronic stable hypercapnic COPD. What was your recommendation there? Well, um, to answer your question directly, we recommended uh, against any in-laboratory uh, assessment um, before starting on non-invasive ventilation. And, you know, what's really interesting is that there's, there's very few data here. Um, most of the research in non-invasive ventilation comes from Europe. And what's interesting is that patients there are often admitted to hospital uh, to get started on non-invasive ventilation and particularly to use um, what's called high-intensity non-invasive ventilation, which I think we'll get to in a minute. You know, in the U.S., that's not really an option. And so I think some providers want to kind of see what will happen when they start somebody on ventilation, so they bring them into the laboratory. But, um, you know, that approach, it's hard in many places to, to bring people into the laboratory. It adds sort of a another hurdle for them to cross before they get on a therapy which could, could help them. Um, and then it's not clear, or we actually thought it was not advisable to try to correct carbon dioxide levels in one night anyway. You know, this is a therapy that's going to kick in and, and sort of help people over weeks, really. So we recommended against the need for an in-laboratory uh, study to, to determine settings. Okay, and then finally, should non-invasive ventilation with the targeted normalization of PCO2 versus non-invasive ventilation without targeting normal PCO2 be used for long-term non-invasive ventilation in patients with COPD? Yeah, so this gets into this uh, idea of so-called high-intensity non-invasive ventilation. And, you know, the, uh, the thought process behind high-intensity non-invasive ventilation is you have a patient with an elevated PaCO2, and we should use non-invasive ventilation to drive that down. And, and by analogy, when we have patients who are hypoxemic with COPD, we can measure their oxygen level easily. We can apply supplemental oxygen. They can wear it up to 24 hours per day. Uh, we can adjust the delivery. It gets a lot trickier with non-invasive ventilation. You know, what, what's your goal when you set the parameters? Um, what are you trying to do? So at least one uh, method is this method of high intensity to use as much driving pressure as you need to use a backup rate, really let the ventilator do the work of breathing uh, so that CO2 levels do fall. And uh, at least we sort of get the sense that that this means that the non-invasive ventilation is doing something or having an effect. And many of the recent positive studies with non-invasive ventilation have used this kind of approach, um, the targeted normalization of PaCO2. So, you know, having said all that, the combined data on high-intensity NIV are pretty mixed, uh, but we thought this was reasonable to have this as a goal. So our recommendation was, again, a conditional recommendation to try to target PaCO2 reduction. Um, and that the marginal cost of this, you know, you've already gone through setting somebody up with non-invasive ventilation. It wouldn't be much more work to target CO2. And it, it actually gives you something to aim for as opposed to just, we'll just use bi-level PAP. You know, it's sort of a way to make sure you're giving somebody perhaps the right amount of help that they need from the ventilator. 
Now, the European Respiratory Society also recently published results of a task force on a home non-invasive ventilation for stable hypercapnic COPD. Uh, are there any important differences between uh, your report and the European report? Well, um, there are a couple things, um, not, not in terms of disagreement. So I want to emphasize that, that first, I think there were a few questions that overlapped and uh, we got to the same conclusions. And I think the similarities really are that, that they agreed that non-invasive ventilation was something useful, uh, that you should target CO2 levels, and that you should reevaluate patients after, after an acute worsening of disease. Um, where, where we differed a little bit, um, they didn't have questions about in-lab titration. I think partly because a lot of them, it's easier to bring patients into the hospital, as we talked about. They also didn't really think about, I shouldn't say didn't think about, one of their questions wasn't asking about evaluating for obstructive sleep apnea. I think in part that reflects uh, how CMS, how Medicare in the United States, you have to think about sleep apnea before you get a bi-level device. I think it also may unfortunately reflect, you know, the kinds of patients that we see versus in uh, Western Europe in terms of obesity rates, you know, I think we have more obesity, more OSA, more obesity hypoventilation. But one thing that they did look at, which we did not look at, is they looked at you know, the different modes that can be used on, uh, to, to deliver non-invasive ventilation. So there's kind of an alphabet soup out there now of different modes that can be used uh, with very little data between the different modes. In the end, they suggested sticking with sort of set pressure uh, bi-level support, which is what's been demonstrated in all the studies. And um, we didn't address that question specifically because we, we knew the data would be too sparse to, to say very much about that. Okay, so that's the end of the recommendations. Can you help put this all together for, for the listeners? What are the important issues to consider with non-invasive ventilation in patients with hypercapnic COPD? Well, you know, I think that uh, the main thing is that uh, even though as we're talking about this and we talk about the, the different questions and the methodology, and, and certainly the document, you know, is, will take a little bit of a read, but, you know, this is pretty exciting stuff. I mean, if you, if you don't have many arrows in your quiver that can improve mortality for COPD, I do think that there, there is a, quite a bit of evidence that non-invasive ventilation is something that we can use and we're gonna improve those hard outcomes. I think for a variety of reasons, one which is just that it may be hard to measure arterial blood gases in the outpatient setting, um, we don't use this therapy enough. So if you look back at uh, the use of oxygen for COPD, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, there was some slow acceptance and, and trying to get people on a therapy that would improve outcomes. I think, I think we need to be more excited about this and more enthusiastic that this is something that can help many patients with COPD, not only with heart outcomes, but also feeling better. Um, and then the other thing which I think is in the background of the, of the overall clinical practice guideline and comes up in a couple of questions, but as many patients as probably need non-invasive ventilation with COPD, there's probably many patients with COPD who also have just, I'll say, 
uh, obstructive sleep apnea and need treatment for that disease as well, which might help their COPD, might help them feel better. So I think just the broader um, implications of this guideline is that think about your patients during the night uh, and what their sleep is like. And we know that patients with COPD don't sleep very well. And I, I think we should start thinking about that in ways we can improve that. All of your recommendations were conditional due to the limitations of the, the evidence. What are the important unanswered questions and, and research priorities moving forward? Well, I mean, there are, there are so many unanswered questions. Um, and uh, and I, will, I will just highlight a couple. I will say in uh, our document, if people want to go through the, um, the sort of executive summary of that, under each of our five uh, questions, we did have sort of, uh, you know, research priorities or unanswered questions. And I think there's a whole bunch there. Um, I think, you know, we still need, um, we still need more data along these lines. I think we would love to know uh, who are the people that would be expected to benefit the most from this intervention? Is there some level of hypercapnia that, that we know uh, we should definitely be doing this on? Um, for example, if you had a, a patient who had an acute exacerbation and they're in the hospital and their PaCO2 is 75, could we predict this patient, their PaCO2 is not going to get better? This person, yes, we should start non-invasive ventilation right now. We shouldn't wait and we can maybe prevent their exacerbation. Um, so sort of what are the phenotypes of COPD that might improve with non-invasive ventilation? We don't know if, if CO2 is important. We, we use it as a target. Uh, but we don't know if the improved outcomes are because we reduce the CO2. Is it a marker of uh, the effectiveness of non-invasive ventilation? Uh, so I think uh, on all levels, um, basic science, uh, clinical outcomes, systems level or implementation level, I think there is a tremendous amount of opportunity here um, for people in the field to kind of help, you know, help uh, so that when we're writing guidelines, you know, 10 years from now, we can fill in a lot of these gaps that we have currently. Oh, thank you. This, I mean, this has been very informative. Do you have any final points you, you want to make before we close? Yeah, I, I want to, um, I do have a couple thoughts. So the, the first, again, I just want to say thank you to uh, the participants, um, you know, my co-authors. This is in some ways, uh, it takes a lot of work and people give up many hours and days of their lives to, to think about these issues. And, and we think we're doing good for, for the community and for our patients. But uh, again, I just want to say thank you. The, the second thing is, uh, I think there are a lot of devils in the details here still. So, um, you know, there's still a lot more work to be done. The, the main thing I wanted to say is that I really hope these guidelines are matched by a parallel effort, which we're doing, which makes it easier for patients to get the right therapy. So. What I mean by that, almost all of the studies that we looked at, when we talk about non-invasive ventilation, we talk about uh, providing bi-level support with a backup rate. And at least in the US, it's incredibly difficult. You have to jump through a lot of hoops to get bi-level with a backup rate. So I'm now part of, a, of an effort that's going on right now, which is a multi-society effort, American Thoracic Society, CHESS, American Academy of Sleep Medicine, American Academy of Respiratory Care, um, to try to change the policy around these devices. So I think 
you know, as much as we've identified what we think is the right thing for patients, we now need to fight another battle to make sure that we, you know, we can actually get the right care for the right patients at the right time. And so I hope people will keep an eye out for that. And, and, and for those of you who take care of patients with COPD, um, I hope you will help us advocate for, for being able to get these therapies. So I'd like to thank Dr. Owens for doing this. Uh, to the listener, to read the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, you can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thank you again for listening and have a great day. Thank you.